The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So we are continuing in this sermon series looking at our biblical worldview for creation looking at how do we understand our identity and participation in God's reconciliation of all things. And for the first two weeks, we've been laying a foundation, a foundation on relationship. Our first week, we explored God and how he sees the world that he has created, how he has been invested in it from the beginning all the way to eternity, because there is no end. We looked at last week how Jesus, his mission to rid the world of sin expands to the entirety of the natural world, that his vision and mission and purpose is huge and encompasses all things. And so in this way, we're sort of exploring this uh, triangular relationship. Um, If you can throw up the, the slide there, perfect, of seeing how God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit relate to the natural world, also relating to us, but then how we relate to the natural world as well. And all three of these elements inform each other. And so we've taken cues from how God, Jesus, and the Spirit relate to the natural world, and we're going to use that as sort of a springboard to understand how not only we relate to the natural world, but how through, and this will be in next week, through our identity in God, through Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit, we then are to interact with the world around us. It's all about relationship. Everything that we do, everything that we live into our lives, it's all determined by our relationships. This isn't a, a foreign concept, I think, to any of us, that whether you know, we're parents, children, brothers and sisters, employers, employees, volunteers, everything in our life is governed by the relationships that we have with other people. And the way I see it, our relationship with the natural world is no different and has just as significant of an impact. So today, I want to explore the voice of creation. How does creation speak to us, right? Because in relationship, it's not beneficial if it's just a one-way street, one person saying one thing over and over, not giving the other person time to give their input, to respond, to be in dialogue. And so I wanted to take some time to say, to seek how does creation speak to us? Because of course, the natural world, the, the birds, the possums, the flowers, they don't speak any discernible English language, so we have to listen a little bit harder. We have to use more, perhaps, spiritual ears to hear what they have to say. And so our first passage this morning we're going to tap into is uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. And this is a favorite of people that study um, environmental theology. For Paul writes, he says, We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And for a lot of commentators, they look at this and they they try and make sense of what exactly is creation groaning against? What is creation trying to tell of itself? Some point to the current environmental degradation and they say, like, this is what it's all about. The earth is in crisis. The earth is struggling. That must be what is groaning. But as I look at this and we see groaning in the pains of childbirth, in Paul's context, childbirth, while still incredibly painful, risky, even deadly process. Childbirth anticipates new life. It looks ahead to something new that is going to be created, something new brought into this world. And so as creation, 
which we learned last week is under the bondage of sin, something that we have brought into this world. It does certainly strain against that condition. It strains against the sinful condition. It is painful, and there is death for sure, but it looks ahead to new life. Creation, knowing of the work of Jesus, knowing of the salvation that Jesus has brought for the natural world, eagerly awaits this new life, longing for deliverance from sin and through Christ. And this is something that is well in line with all of Scripture. This is not, again, something that Paul just invented or is a nice little thought that we put in and we want to make a mountain out of this tiny verse. We don't want to simply look at something in Scripture and simply take it to say that this is true for all times. We want to see it within the whole of the biblical witness. I thought about a fun analogy to think about looking at Scripture all this way, because my wife and I have been watching a lot of baking shows recently, a lot of competitions, most recently the Great Canadian Baking Show. And sometimes when they sit down and the judges go and they look at their, at their cakes and their pies and their tarts, they pick at the individual elements to see how they are done to take them one by one, a bit of filling, a bit of frosting, a bit of cake, and they see how those flavors work and how that sits on the palate. And sometimes we might approach Scripture the same way, looking at one individual element, one verse, one chapter, and just chewing that really good and well. But sometimes you have to put the whole piece in your mouth. You have to bite every single element down and see how they work together. And so we're going to do a lot of that today. So we're going to be flipping through a lot of Scripture. We're going to be chewing on the entirety of the biblical witness to understand exactly how creation speaks, because creation speaks in far more ways than just what Paul has listed here. But in all of them, we see this common unifying element, the thing that makes the whole desert of Scripture work together, this longing for new life. And in no place, there's no place better to hear the voice of creation than the prophet's so you're welcome to uh, jump into Joel uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and 20. This whole first chapter is actually fantastic in terms of showcasing the voice of creation. It's a chapter that's hard to read because it's full of judgment and uh, very destructive language, but within it, creation speaks out. For, for the prophet Joel, he comes against the people of Israel. They have been sinning against God. They have been sinning against their neighbor, sinning against the land. And he records these words. He says, How the cattle moan, how the herds mill about, because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Even the flames have burned up all the fields of the tree. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures in this wilderness. Israel has not treated their promised land well. They have not treated their neighbors well. They have not lived a life after God well, and the, na the natural world is suffering. Suffering so much to an extent that their, their herd animals, the ones that give them life, that provide them well-being, and even the wild animals in the fields and the forests recognize the destructive impact that sin has had on their life and their environment. And so they cry out to God, longing for God to do something, it is not just humans that have the ability to ask God for salvation, to ask God for deliverance from difficult circumstances, from the devastating impacts of sin. And so creation is then called to witness, to witness against the sins of humanity, but also to witness the impending salvation and new life of God. 
what we do as people impacts the natural world, and the natural world responds. When we live in a way that is contrary to God's will for our lives, just as the people of Israel does, did, and it brings about devastation to all inhabitants of the land and the land itself, the land, the animals, cry out. And Jeremiah takes this thought as well. In Jeremiah 12, he says, Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. The condemnation for Judah from the prophet Jeremiah is that no one actually cares about the natural world. No one cares about the fields and the trees. No one cares about the animals that would inhabit it. This is one of the indictments against them. Part of the reason that Israel is taken into exile is not just limited to their idolatry. It is not just limited to the way that they oppressed their fellow Israelites, that they created inequality. Part of the charge against Israel and Judah is the way they treated the natural world, giving cause to, as the prophet Joel said, for them to cry out seeking deliverance. And as we explored in previous weeks, God gave the land that rest. It gave them that 70 years rest when Israel and Judah were taken into exile. God heard the cries of creation and listened. And just as much as it was to discipline Israel and Judah to call them back to right account, it was also about giving the land rest from oppression. The voice of creation is strong throughout the prophets. Ezekiel also is a wonderful one that if you wanted to spend some time in that book this week, that has some great examples. But we must continue. Because as much as I'd love to spend all morning and perhaps the afternoon talking to you about this, I've got to get Christina to a baby shower, so I've got to go. And so, I want to start to take a very common idea now, because as I want to move into the New Testament... Right, we've laid a foundation. God cares for the earth. Jesus has come to save the whole earth, and the earth speaks and cries out for deliverance. It is aware of the sin and is aware of the means of salvation. What do we do? This is the human participation part we're starting to get to from the title. And so I want to talk about caring for the least of these. And I want to set this up using the mission of Jesus, because we all would like to be more Christ-like, right? Right? Yeah. We all want to live a life that more embodies the values and the actions that Jesus demonstrated on his time on earth. And so, let's have a look at the words of Jesus. One of my favorite places to start is in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 4, 18 to 19. This is Jesus' first sermon, the first time he preaches, and he's in a synagogue in his hometown, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads these words. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What Jesus is doing is he's tapping in to the idea of jubilee, this idea that every, every seven years, the land and the inhabitants were to have a Sabbath rest. And then every seven cycles of seven years in that 50th year, It was to be an entire year of jubilee, of forgiving of debts, of rest, of celebration, of a great and fantastic time, and these times of Sabbath rest, these times of jubilee, it was not just for people, it was for the animals as well. 
was for the land. The entirety of creation was to rest, to celebrate together, not something just isolated to us. And as Jesus taps in to this vision of rest, this vision of celebration and jubilee, he aligns himself with rest for all things. Jesus demonstrates his heavenly concern with the things of earth, with the wellness and the well-being of all. We can't separate one from the other, but that whole mission of saving creation is right there in the beginning of his ministry. He's come so that everything might find rest. And then we come to Mark. Mark 12, and you'll have to forgive the, uh, the error in your bulletins. But in Mark 12, 28 to 43, someone comes and asks Jesus about the law, about which is the greatest commandment, to which Jesus says, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Love for God and love for neighbor. But of course, who is your neighbor? How does this apply to the natural world? We are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a man is beaten by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road, and many religious elites pass by him, but it's the Samaritan that stops, that spends his own time and his own money to nurse the man back to health. And when Jesus asks the teacher of the law who posed a question to him about who his neighbor is, Jesus says, who was this man's neighbor? He says, the one who had mercy on him. It is not just about proximity, but it is about a type of behavior towards another person that makes you neighborly towards another. And as I think about this concept of neighborliness, thinking about it within that context of all of creation crying out looking for new life, within the context of Jesus' ministry of bringing jubilee and rest to all, I think about the word ecology, something I studied in my undergrad, which comes from the Greek oikos and logia, which means oikos meaning house, logia meaning study. So ecology, that natural science of the natural world, is a study of home, a study of our shared home, a place that we all live, that we all inhabit together. The natural world and all of its inhabitants then have the potential to be our neighbor. And so, if we are to then love God, who loves this world so much, and to love our neighbor, to love the ones that we share this home of earth with, we are called to show mercy and compassion and justice, not just to human beings, but to all that share our home. But that's a very, very big task. So maybe we can narrow it down a little bit. Maybe. It's still going to be absolutely massive by the time I'm done this. And so I'd invite you to turn to James 2, 4 to 6, and 15. I'm doing great on verse and chapter numbers. Verse 169 today. Now, we'll just stop at verse 16. I won't read that much. Because James, he picks up this, this idea of mercy, of extending it to all, but he narrows down the focus. And you'll see when I'm done that even when I try and narrow down the focus, it's still massive because creation is massive. And so James, writing to the early church, 
He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised, those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Suppose a brother is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? James is asking to focus on those who are oppressed, those who are poor, unable to defend themselves. And we certainly don't have to look too far in our own city to find examples of those who have no agency, no resources to fight for what they need. But I would also argue that the natural world suffers from the same type of oppression, the same lack of ability. For it is difficult to sometimes hear what exactly our natural world needs. It cannot advocate for itself, but must rely on environmentalists and people like us to advocate on its behalf. We might consider the natural world as being poor, as being oppressed. And what's more, if we don't pay attention to the voice of creation in this context of oppression, we're not going to be able to affect to help people as well. Because we need that ecological, that shared home response to suffering of not only people, but of all things. For what good does it do to continually send bag after bag of grain to Central Africa if we are doing nothing to alleviate the causes of drought? What does it mean to take care of people who are suffering from increasingly powerful typhoons and flooding if we're not doing something to limit the impacts of climate change that exacerbate these effects? If we want to have a true impact in response to suffering, it means we have to consider the whole the whole of our home, and to respond as such. Because just as the gems reminded us this morning that God has stepped in to be our friend and that through Jesus we are able to be friends with God, so too are we to take that and be friends with all of the natural world, human, animal, and plant alike. To listen to their voice and to invest our energies and times into alleviating suffering and oppression for those that are most vulnerable, human and creature alike. Nothing can escape our lens as the church. Nothing escapes the mission of God, and so why should anything be left out of our mission? And so I want to invite you to take some time this week to learn about your shared home, to learn about what is going on in our very own communities. We have wonderful resources at our disposal, one such as the Bay Area Restoration Council, which looks at the shared home of the Bay Area as shared by Hamilton and Burlington. Learning about things like Coots Paradise, but what goes on in these important wetlands and how our habits, things that we might not even think about, impact the wellness of not only the creatures there, but the wellness of our own communities. It's all connected. Perhaps this summer you're already planning your camping vacations. Many of the provincial parks I've visited have an interpretive center, a place to go to learn about what are the natural plants and animals in these popular holiday destinations. How do they impact the community around? Places that we get to enjoy and visit. Learn about how our choices, our daily choices, can preserve these wonderful holiday destinations. 
You might also wonder what kind of plants you can put in your own garden, how you can make the, your own land and house a place that fosters wellness and flourishing for all the creatures that you share your yard with. Because if I've learned anything, it's that no matter how well you build your fence, a skunk is always going to get under it. But what can you do to live well with them, to not view our neighbors as pests, but to plant wildflowers for the bees, to set out oranges for the orioles, and to live in such a way that we can foster good, beneficial life instead of living in conflict and competition with all our furry friends. Because this is the vision of the new creation, the vision that God has set into motion from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, the vision that Christ, through his sacrifice, has redeemed and restored and is bringing about. Because when we look into the book of Revelation, we do see a city come down. We see a new Jerusalem, but within that city, there is a river. There are trees, and those trees are important because there is healing in their leaves. The natural world has a place. The natural world brings life. And we are called as children of God, to pay attention, to step outside of these doors and to listen, to listen to the voice of creation, to hear it say, I need help. Can you? Show me mercy. And the wonderful thing is, we can. We don't have to be mysterious to be uninformed, to be uncertain about what to do. There are resources, but ultimately, we have the Spirit of God in each and every one of us that can convict us of ways that we need to change, but to encourage us to live well with all our neighbors. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Spirit, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, we thank you so much for this world you created, that it gives us food, and it gives us wonderful natural places to enjoy, that we get resources with which we can make clothes and build houses and all the wonderful technologies that we enjoy. There is so much good that you have gifted us, and we're sorry that, that sometimes we have messed it up so bad. Heavenly Father, as we go into this week, I, can, I pray that you would change our hearts to not view the natural world as something to conquer, as something to avoid, but something to live in harmony with to embrace. Grant us ears to listen, eyes to see, mouths to speak on behalf of your suffering creation, knowing that when we address the oppression of the natural world, we also address human suffering. They are not separate because you have created us in such a way that we flourish with this natural world. And we thank you for that great gift. Heavenly Father, Continue to change our hearts, to change our minds in only a way that you can, trusting that the work is done through you and you alone. Amen.